This podcast is for general informational purposes only and represents the individual opinions of Dr. Dimitri Bick, Dr. Stefan de Graff, Dr. Suzanne Mignon, and the guests. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services and should not be taken as medical advice or an establishment of standard of care. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Please don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe, but more importantly leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Reviews not only help us grow listeners, but also help us grow as a show, improve our content, and make us better. I have four topics to start off the show today, but there's absolutely no way we can get through all four. So I'm going to make this a choice because we are a democracy, despite what others think we are. And this podcast is a democracy. So I'm going to give you four options. I have sound from a news broadcast, which gives us the top five youth speak terms that currently teenagers are using. We can do that. We can do what is the worst feeling that any athlete can have in sports, which is timely because something happened yesterday that I thought just was awful for someone. We can do canine discrimination and canine racial profiling. (laughs) And we can talk about the travesty of the college football playoff committee choice that happened at noon today. So of, yes, of those things. What would you guys want to start with? Well, I'm I, I'm always willing to learn about youth speak. I don't want to I want to I don't want to be left behind with the youngsters of the world. Really, that that's what you want to do? Well, youth I, speak. What about what about you, I mean, I, Maybe you guys want to do. Well, Susan just like, eh, I'm out. <laughs> Susan's like, like eh, I'm out. <laughs> I don't want to do any of this stuff. <laughs> And that's um, a shame because we need her because you and I are not going to you're not going to agree on it. Speak. Welcome back, Suzanne. Right. I think we should do. I'm good with you, Speaker Canine. Yeah, the canine thing kind of piqued my interest. To be honest with you, because I I don't okay. really talk about the worst feelings for athletes because it's sad, especially since one of my favorite players is out for the season now as a result of the Jets game last week. Okay. All right, fine. Let's do let's do the youth speak then. Generation X explains youth speak. All right. So this week's youth speak is actually going to come from this video is from ABC7 in LA. You're not going to be able to see it obviously because we're an audio medium, but I am going to show it to the group here. Here's the video and this is uh the top 5 uh, terms that teenagers are using right now. So let's let's go for this. The online <laughs> language learning platform has relieved its survey, a released its survey of the most commonly used slang terms teens use, and the most used word is 
Sus, short for suspicious. <laughs> oh, I'm being corrected in my ear. Sus, not sus. 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 Bet, which means I agree, is next. Yeet means to violently throw something. <laughs> Salty means to be upset. And cap, which is another word for lying, rounds out the top five words. If you're lost, you're not alone, as <laughs> I am clearly. According to the survey, just 2% of parents knew every word on this year's list. No cap. Don't be salty because you don't know everything. Bet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how many, honestly, let's, let's do an honest survey here. How many of those did you guys actually know? Four. Four. I ain't really? no yeet. I ain't no yeet. I ain't no yeet. No cap. Just just facts. Yes. Which 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 ones did you know, Suzanne? I knew all of them. I have it. Oh, you stop. You knew Yeet? No. Seriously, yes. You knew Yeet? How do you spell Yeet? Yes. Why? How do you spell Yeet? And then you throw it. I thought there was like four E's in the middle. Like why? No, and then they, they turn it into a verb. You're yeeting across. Are you serious? Yeah. You know, and if you oh, watch boy. TikTok, you would hear those. Like I said, I should get on TikTok. Steph <laughs> is our youngest member by age. I thought so. Suzanne is our youngest member by mental capacity or thanks to me. Uh, mental wow. age. Yes, I knew yeah. four of them. I knew sus. I knew bet, which actually bet was going to be our youth speak term of the week. Bet until I saw this video. Uh, I knew bet. I knew cap. And what was what was the fourth one? Number four. I don't remember it now. Sus. I didn't, sus, I didn't know bet, sus. Eat, cap. Know oh, sus. oh, um, salty. 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 Yeah. I didn't think salty was a teen term. I, I've been using salty for a long time. Yeah, and and I think that these terms have really changed significantly in the more recent months and whatnot because cap was really more a couple of years ago that they were using mm -hmm. because that's all my kids were saying in the house. Um, so I'm sure that there are more updated versions. Facts, no printers. Okay. I just, I just love that one. I just love that one. No printer. Let me, let me tell you what happened to my dog this week. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but my dog is a Portuguese water dog. It is a, it's not a big dog, but it's not a small, it's a medium size. He's probably about 50 pounds, right? And he's very brown. He's just a, he's a brown dog. And he's adorable. I can anyway. relate. <laughs> yes, I can... you are brown and adorable. And I'm adorable. That's true. Yes, I, I That's I was going to say. That's exactly right. You and the dog can relate. And so she, Maria takes this, Maria takes our dog to her office every day. And, you know, you walk into the office. It's, people can see you walking in. So there has been a barking dog in their building um apparently for a little bit for a while and so maria came to her office the other day and saw a note on the door that says uh please keep your dog quiet there's other people trying to work here and she thinks and i don't disagree with this she thinks that's discrimination because someone is profiling our big brown dog and thinking that that must be the dog that's barking instead of whatever it is that that other dog clearly is doing. Are you sure that was directed at your dog? I don't. It was, I, it was on maybe, her office door. But oh. maybe that's the only dog people saw coming. In. It's exactly right. 
but but that doesn't mean that it is the only dog in the building. Correct. But they just assume that this assume. big brown dog well, must have been the one that must have been the terrible dog that's barking because I do hear your dog. Your dog does bark when when we record, right? I mean, we have heard your dog barking. I mean, we we we, we kind of have heard the dog barking. That's true, know? but only when somebody annoys him. So my kids are down there annoying him, and so that's when he barks. Someone in the office isn't annoying him. I'm not saying it's he never he never barks. And okay. the office is isolated. According to Maria, he never barks. This is discrimination against the dog because why would you just it would be like, you know, there's it's there's profiling. A, a, it's profiling. there's a theft. Somebody's screaming thief, thief, and this guy's walking down and goes, It must be you because you're the only person I see on the street. Sure, but and, let's like, talk about let's go back to psychology and let's go to perception and let's go to the <laughs> principles of Gestalt psychology, Dimitri. Which I oh my god, on. yes, but please let's have, do that. You do have the law of proximity, things that are close in time that a pair is belonging together. Somebody sees your dog, somebody hears a dog, they believe it's the dog. Is that discrimination? I Absolutely. don't. Absolutely, I don't. I think don't so. think so. It's just I human nature. Discrimination. I think it's a person making an assumption, a faulty assumption, but it's still an assumption based upon the information they have available. That's it. Now, if if, if your there was your dog in the office and some other white. Frenchie somewhere down the hall, and they did not <laughs> they did not put that note on that door, but on on your on Maria's door. Then yes, they profiled your dog, another white Frenchie down the hall. Unless but we don't we don't know if they saw the other dog. We don't know that. We're just we don't know if they saw if they know if they saw the other dog. All we know is there's a note on that door, assuming that it was our. And dog. are you concerned that the discrimination is because your dog is? big and brown it, the thought did cross my mind because otherwise the note would have said something to that effect i think if they were targeting your dog for that because people can be very bold to translate i think susan just saying this is more like a you problem Today is Peter Young. He is the author of Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger, along with the Blue Team. He is a former sports broadcaster who was doing games for CBS, ESPN, Outdoor Life Network, among others. And he's with us to talk about his experience in what he describes as a small cult. And so, hi, Peter. Thanks for coming on. Dimitri, hi. Thanks for having me. Tell us what happened um, and go through kind of how this started for you and how it became what it did. Well, I'll try and give you the short version because I, I could uh, take a long time to explain it. It, it uh, transpired over 20 years. Basically, I was unwittingly um, kind of sucked into a small religious cult when I married the love of my life. I was uh, mid to late 20s, living in Idaho as a sports broadcaster, and I I, uh, I knew about this woman that I called her the tall blonde woman. She was beautiful and uh, hadn't met her yet. And then a friend of mine, when I started talking about her, knew who it was and, and gave me her name. And then said, be careful, because she and her family have this really weird family guru. So I heard about the family guru before I ever met Paige. But we did meet, and uh, we dated, got engaged, and married, had five children. 
And over the course of two decades, you know, I got to know the family guru really well. Uh, his name was Uncle Robert. He wasn't related to any of us, but he was the classic check all the boxes, small cult leader that my wife adored and revered and honored and loved. Uh, in many ways, um, she did all those things that she really didn't have those for me. So I went along to get along and uh, to try and save my marriage and save my family. But in the end, it wasn't enough. She left me for him. And then things got really ugly. And uh, it really kind of had a very damaging effect, not only on me, but also on my kids. And then, you know, everybody that knew me. And so I had been brainwashed for about, you know, two, two and a half years. Whereas for many years, I didn't want anything to do with the guy. I thought Uncle Robert was a crackpot. And slowly over the years, I kind of started to come around. And then I was all in for a couple of years. And it took me about a good year after she left for me to really have the Lord open my eyes and ears to see that it was a cult. Because I didn't think it was at first. And nobody ever joins a cult knowingly. They never join a cult. They never know they're in one. I always say you never know you are in one. You only know you were. Because once you realize you were or are in a cult, the mind control is already losing its grip on you. And it took about a year for the grip to be released on my mind. Well, all of this is detailed very uh, succinctly um, in your book, um, Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. And I want to point out that Suzanne read this book uh, in about a day and a half which tells me one of two things. Either it's an unbelievable read that is a page turner that can't be put down, or after 369 pages of writing, it's just way too short. It needs to be longer. <laughs> I, I do want to start at the end a little bit and then kind of work backwards because at the end of the book, um, you you mentioned that you're you're still a Christian, you're still religious. And my question here is, what is your take on religion now that you were in this? Has it soured you at all on religion or Christianity at all? Not at all. Several people have remarked over the years, boy, it's remarkable or wonderful, whatever you want to call it, that you did not turn your back on your faith. And my answer to that is, well, without it, I wouldn't be here. I could not imagine going through life as difficult as it is uh, without a Savior, without a Lord looking out for me. So I, I learned a lot, and, and really the inverse is true, and that is that through this process, I learned a lot. I grew in my faith. It was horrible. I wish I could have learned differently. I wish I didn't have to experience all this pain. But, you know, there is the biblical idea or theme that the Lord can take anything that we do and, and screw up and use it for good. And I believe he's done that with, with me and in my case, which is why I speak out. I had no desire really to air my dirty laundry or my life to people, but cults control their members through paranoia, secrecy, and isolation. So I had been kind of cowed and beaten down for years to not say anything. And uh, maybe if I had, this would be a different story. So that's why I speak out now. That's why I wrote the book. And even when you were going through the separation with Paige and then later the divorce, um, from what I remember reading, you were told you couldn't talk to anybody about it. And that had to be just so emotionally debilitating for you um, until you finally were got that courage and strength to reach out to the support with your family. I mean, imagine if you can, the worst thing you've ever experienced. Now, during that time, you can't eat, you can't sleep, 
Nobody knows what you're going through and you're not allowed to tell anybody. <laughs> That's not a good situation to be in. And I allow Why it. were you why were you not allowed to tell anyone? So again, you go back to how Colts control members, when Paige left me, she was doing something unbiblical. She was leaving a husband who was faithful. I never had an affair, never wanted an affair, there was never an abuse. Before she left me, I think I raised my voice at her once. I loved the woman. So what she was doing was wrong, and she knew it. And uh, I think it was along the lines of, you know, if I started telling people, my friends, my family, uh, people in the local community, they would then say, boy, that doesn't sound right. That sounds awful. Now you have attention directed at Paige and Uncle Robert. And the goal was always protect Uncle Robert. That was always her goal, was he and his beliefs had to be protected at all costs. Well, two things. One, how do you know that she knew it was wrong? And two, you did eventually tell people at the end, um, and you got the response that we would all think that you would get, which is, you're in a cult, dude. You need to get out. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> So I can I can answer the first question. How does she know it was wrong? Well, number one it was clear. It's unbiblical. She knew her Bible. She'd read it. But I can also know for certain by the way that she reacted and then the uh, plan that she and Uncle Robert, her cult leader, put in place. And so that happened like two months after she left me, which she told all the kids. And then I went and told all of our children, the youngest four of our five. I said, listen, I'm sorry. I take all the blame. I wish I could do it all over again. I love you and I love your mother. So then when she found out, when Paige found out that I told all the children that I love her, she said, well, why did you say that? I said, because it's true. And then she said, no, it's not true. You only thought you loved me. So that was, of course, in her mind, you know, uh, an abomination that I would say that. And, you know, if the kids know daddy still loves mommy, why didn't mommy leave? So now they had to come up with cover for what she did. And that cover was, well, Peter, you were a liar all those years. You were never Christian. You were never a believer. You were a liar, a fraud, a devil, a Satan, a sorcerer, and an abuser, et cetera, et cetera. And that all started shortly after she left. And again, I'm, I'm certain that this was just simple theological cover mm -hmm. because what she was doing was wrong. Yeah. And, and you really became the target and you know, she was engaging in parental alienation tactics, as you very clearly laid out through there, which is part of that isolation that also occurs with the cults, right? And when somebody tries to leave the cult, um, and if they have children that are still with another parent in the cult, those children are told that that parent who has left that group is the evil one. Yeah. And, um, you know, getting back to Suzanne, you're reading the book like in a day and a half. I, I, I always tell people or what it usually happens is people can't put it down or they have to put it down for a break and come back to it. So I say that in uh, to lead into this, that with everything that I wrote in there, uh, all the letters and emails that I quote, so people know it's not a he said, she said, right? I mean, they were so confident, Paige and Uncle Robert, that they put everything in writing. They feel like they had nothing to hide. I had probably in the first draft or two, another 20 pages or so of letters and emails that I've, I just cut out because it was too much. Like people who read the first few drafts were just overwhelmed by this. So I have so much evidence of the parental alienation, which really is horrendous. 
to kids. I, I got to be honest. I'm, I'm glad you said that because as I was reading it and you would quote those emails and those communications, um, I got through a couple of them. And after that, I was like, I just skipped it because I don't usually get triggered by things, but that triggered me. It was so bad. Uh, if you, you guys read this book and I encourage you to do it, um, it's, it's, it's to be, to be the one in it, it's, it must be beyond imagination, but was there any, a point, was there any point in time where you kind of got this sense that, um, and I want to call him Robert Booty or Booty, because one of the things you put in the book and I, and I like this is when you started to kind of turn, you stopped calling him uncle. And you right. started just calling him Booty, which took away his power. Right. And that's very important. So I, I don't want to call him that either. So um, I, was there ever a point where you kind of looked at this and they're like, this, this guy's nuts? Um, and what, what kept you from saying at any point, you know, dude, like, get lost. Like, you're an idiot. So there were two points. Well, let's say two time frames where I recognized he was nuts. One was early on, a couple of years into our marriage. And, uh, you know, he shared his theology about them. The Jews are trying to dominate Christians and take over the world and casinos are the few churches, et cetera, et cetera. You can read about it in the book. And I remember thinking, you know, I'd look around the room at our little conferences where he would talk and everybody else believed this. And I thought, this is bizarre. But I didn't say anything because I knew my wife believed it. And I, I knew if I'd said something, I would be in the firing line. It would not be Boy, Peter, you bring up a good point. It would be, Peter, why are you so dumb that you don't understand Uncle Robert? So I didn't say anything. And then it had kind of had an effect on me. Then on the back end, after Paige had left and all of this horrible stuff was happening, there was no one light bulb moment, but there were several emails that as bad as they were, and people would read them, you guys would read them, and I would share them with friends and family, and they would see it immediately. And they weren't that alarming to me yet, which is just mind-boggling when I think back and read these emails, how egregious they are. But at the moment, I didn't think they were that bad. Well, I finally got to the point where they started to say that I had imprisoned our children with biological determinism and all of its miserable attachment. I knew that was wrong. And that kind of started the ball rolling. First of all, I think what you've been through, I could have never imagined going through it. You know, people say um, in hindsight, there's a lot of things that you could have uh, noticed in the moment. But do you recall when you started having that sense of mind that it was wrong, that you had to get yourself out? Do you recall having a sense of either shame or either fear of um, having the, them, Uncle Robert or, or Paige coming back at you and so maybe having some legal implication, maybe threatening you with some kind of, um, you know, risk that you would take on from your own life. So was it, I guess my question is, was it either shame of sharing what you've been through and what kind of things that you've been involved with? Or is it more sort of fear of being um, attacked um, publicly by Uncle Robert and Paige? It's an interesting question. And, and it's, uh, it's a fascinating question because it, it, the kind of answer is, short answer is yes and no. There was shame early on. Because that's what cult leaders do. They shame you. They right. control you, you know, to make you feel like you're a miserable person. Uh, so there was that. But when I finally started to come around and realize what had happened, there was no shame. I don't know. I don't, maybe I was supposed to feel shame, but I didn't. I, I was more fear. 
Because as I started to pull away and realize that Robert Booty was not the solution, he was the problem, I still had in the back of my mind this wonderful idea that our marriage would rise like the phoenix and she would come back to me. And, you know, again, you look back and I think, oh my gosh, Peter, how could you believe that? But I really did. So it was fear, not shame, because I still had Robert on a pedestal and to go against him, to say, no, you're wrong. This is wrong was at that moment terrifying to do. So I guess that, that's, that goes along with the, with the notion of being brainwashed. At that time, you had no kind of insight of what was going on. Yeah, that makes sense. And it seems like to some extent, too, like you said, you kind of knew, like, you know, what is he talking about with this? There would be times when you would question it. So um, even though you had him up on that pedestal, like Paige and her parents did, and he was, you know, he was it. He was the top man and what he said went and he knew everything. Um, it seems like a lot of what you engaged in is just kind of like public compliance where you didn't necessarily believe all of it that was happening, but went along with it. And it seems like, as you said, to really just keep your family intact and save your marriage. Well, you had mentioned, I think maybe right before we started recording, it was a massive amount of cognitive dissonance for years that I had to engage in. And it was exhausting. I mean, absolutely exhausting because on the one hand, in my darkest moments, uh, I would read the Bible, I would pray, I'd be in tears and I would plead to the Lord, just like, you know, David does in the Psalms, you know, Lord rescue me. I would do the same thing. And yet in that moment, I still kind of had the thought that, well, Robert Booty's right. And I, and I, I'm not a Christian and the Lord's not hearing my prayers, which is just insanity. So that was the worst of it. But I had some of that, that cognitive dissonance going on inside of my head for years and it was miserable it was very hard the the dsm considers cult indoctrination a dissociative disorder so can you if you can explain what it feels like to be brainwashed or mind controlled as you put it in the book mm. Well, again, I would remind everybody that, you know, in the moment, you never know you're brainwashed. You'll never admit it. You are the last person on earth to be brainwashed. In fact, as I started to question Robert, question Paige and her parents, what I kept getting back from her, from Robert, even from my oldest children, was that um, society had brainwashed me. Society had brainwashed my parents, my children's grandparents. You, all three of you and I were having this conversation. They would consider us brainwashed by the media, society, government, et cetera, et cetera. So the people that truly are brainwashed are probably the ones that are most adamant about not being brainwashed. So I can't tell you what it feels like. I can only tell you what it's like to look back and read what I wrote or read what was written to me, the emails that I would have read. And in that moment said, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I see what Uncle Robert is saying. Uh, I can only tell you now that I don't recognize that person. I do not recognize the Peter Young from 2015, 16, and 17. That's not me. What's different? Well, I'm in control of my mind. And I was not back then, but I didn't know it. I can look back and see it now. The best example would be the letter that I wrote. And it's in the book. 
And, 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 you know, Steph, when you talked about shame, that was where, you know, rubber booty was shaming me. I, I read that letter now and I'll be honest, it's a little embarrassing, but it's so over the top. I wrote this letter to Robert I got a month and a half after Paige left me. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to finally get it right this time. And I'm going to confess every darn thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> every thought, deed, you name it. And uh, it's a bizarre letter. And it really reads like, you know, maybe somebody that would have written it uh, the night of the Jonestown mass suicide. You know, somebody like that at that last moment pleading for their life. Right. That's what this letter read. And that's what it sounds like to me when I read it five years later. Right. Speaking of Jonestown, you know, besides besides Paige and your marriage kind of having you hang on to that cult, what was in your experience, what was a cool aid um, that was the the benefit that you, you think at that time you were getting from being indoctrinated with Uncle Robert and, and Paige and everybody else? Well, Uncle Robert, uh, you know, again, I'll use that phrase. He, only he knew the true gospel. And in, in addition to the true gospel, many other things. I'll make this point, and I do in my book as well, that cult leaders don't lure you in by just spouting utter nonsense right off the bat. They can at times sound very intelligent, and they'll share things with you that you're, you're glad you learned. There are still things that Robert Booty kind of started me on the path of investigating that I still appreciate, limited government, economics, et cetera, et cetera. And then he would take that and then he would twist it and pervert it to the now this road that you've been on of, of investigation that is positive has now gone way off the rails. So um, much of what he shared early on, I, again, would still appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad that I learned it and I still believe a lot of that. But then it would just, again, it, it, it kept going down this rabbit hole of, of wickedness. But the Kool-Aid that you referenced would be that he understood it. And only he did, and there were only few people on earth who did. And wow, look at us. He's our leader. We get to learn from him. Look at how special we are. And he was profiting off of everyone, from what I understand. Everyone was paying him tithes. And it was interesting as I was reading when you were talking about how he would say everybody has an account with the government. And the federal account. And, you know, that struck me as a forensic psychologist. I work with people who claim they're sovereign citizens. Was he along that line and proclaiming a lot of the same things that sovereign citizens? Yes. I, and I'm not uh, an expert on the sovereign citizen. I kind of have an idea what it's about. But I remember Robert also said that there should be no taxes because we wouldn't need taxes to raise the revenue. I thought, well, hey, I'm, I'm all in for no taxes, but you know, where's the money going to come from? So it came from his harebrained idea that all Americans have their own sovereign national credit, which again, I talk about in the book and I, and I really honestly tried to find any kind of material to back it up because I had, you know, been introduced then to Ron Paul, limited government, you know, gold and silver, the Federal Reserve, on and on and on, which I think are legitimate concerns, but the sovereign national credit, I could not find any material anywhere. And you can find anything on the internet. I couldn't find anything that would, would back it up, but he believed it wholeheartedly. And I remember having the discussion with Paige, you know, two, three years before she left me to where I, I knew at this point that uh, my doubts about Robert really did not sit well with her. And I remember asking her like, well, then you explain it to me. 
what does this mean? And she's like, well, here, look, he, Uncle Robert wrote about it in this email. And there'd be like this one line about sovereign national credit. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? How does it work? And she couldn't give me an answer. And, and I knew in that moment, well, you can't give me an answer because you don't understand it. I didn't dare tell her that. But there's a lot of it, I believe, in cult followers where they think, oh, yeah, we know this. We know this theology, this, this idea. If you ask them to explain it, they can't. You'd have to talk to their cult leader. Right. Now that you, you, you know, kind of um, famously wrote that book. And my question, I guess, have you found that more people that you would never expect reach out to you? And telling you about what the what they are going through, and nobody knows about it. And I think you mentioned somebody has sent you a book anonymously, and in in turn, do you find yourself in a position now trying to help people getting themselves out of their own cult uh, um, implications? Well, sure. That that's why I'm on your show. Thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> and that's why I speak publicly. That's why I wrote the book. Um, and and a lot of people have reached out to me. So a lot of people, when they read my book, it will trigger something maybe not often a cult-like experience, but people have reached out to me because it might remind them of a very difficult relationship with a parent or a friend or something where by me divulging what I went through and being open and honest about it, they can relate in some small way, um, which is wonderful to hear as, as a writer, right? I mean, I already went through it. I can't change it, right? I, I, I suffered and went through all that pain might as well try and use it for good. You, you mentioned some of the things that Robert believed, but I'm struggling to find out what the purpose of his organization is, if you can call it that, because cults usually have like a overriding purpose, like Manson, it was to start a race war. Um, uh, David Koresh used religion and power for sex. Uh, Oshi did the same thing, the Wild Wild Country uh, documentary they did. Heaven's Gate, they wanted to go to a spaceship, you know, in a set or something. Level, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was his purpose? Like, I don't understand the purpose of his organization. What was his end game? Well, good question. I haven't figured it out either, but I can tell you this. Um, and people ask that same question. A lot of people ask, you know, why did he do this? What was he getting out of it? Well, I think what he was getting out of it was he had a very small but yet unbelievably devoted following of people that revered him, adored him, and listened to everything he said. And we tithed to him. He wasn't getting rich off of us, but we were sending him money. We were supporting him. And that is very addicting uh, when you have people that are going to treat you that way and put you on a pedestal. It, it's the rare human with a lot of humility and grace that would say, no, this is inappropriate. He was not one of them. He thought it was great. And beyond that, I don't know. That's my best answer. Okay. That, your book gets uh, dark, uh, mm. for lack of a better term. And you mentioned that you couldn't sleep mm -hmm. and that you went to some urgent care facilities to get sleeping pills. Did anyone there ever say to you, you really sound like you're depressed? maybe you should go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist or have, did you ever consider, you know, I think I'm depressed. Maybe I should go seek professional help outside of this. 
Well, I knew I was struggling, and uh, but I would have never gone to a psychologist or a counselor on my own volition. Never began that because of what I had been taught by my page and her parents and booty. I mean, to go to a psychologist or a counselor would have been the worst thing I could do because now I would be sharing uh, the inner workings of Robert and his little group, and and he would have considered that gossip, and I would have been considered a traitor. So I knew all this in my mind. I mean, I read about it in the book, but I just started taking over-the-counter sleeping pills. Like, I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> you just go buy it in the grocery store for a couple of dollars. And I remember at midnight, you know, and I'm pacing my bedroom and I can't sleep. I haven't slept for like two weeks. And and I'm going to take half a pill, right? You take half a pill, then one pill, then two pills. And I'm agonizing over whether or not if I take this little half of a sleeping pill over-the-counter, am I now on the road to hell? Because I'm not trusting Robert and Paige and my in-laws because they've told me, you know, just, you know, don't seek help. Don't seek a way out and go through it. And somehow that little sleeping pill represented turning my back on everything they, they had taught me, which is crazy. Again, I can admit it now. It is crazy. But in that moment, I agonized over taking half of a sleeping pill. Yeah. Since, since having that, that, that experience, are you going through life now? analyzing every single interaction that you have, maybe may co-workers, you know, a manager, boss, your own religion, or any other kind of club, or you analyzing your interaction with people and trying to depict if that person has some tendency of, you know, influencing you or other people? Are you over, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, I guess, sensitive to kind of cues from, from people in their characteristic um, interaction? Well, that's a good question, Steph. If I am, I'm probably not aware of it. And you would think, well, boy, you wouldn't want this to happen again. And that's true. I would never want this to happen again. Um, But I have never met anybody in my life anywhere close to Robert Booty. You know, do I know other narcissists and other people like that? Maybe. But no one has ever come close within a country mile to the grandiose sense of self the narcissism uh, that Uncle Robert had, Robert Booty had, not even close. I want to follow up on uh, the last question um, about, you know, your darkest days. And and this is a personal, very personal question, I guess, more than that we've been asking. So you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but at the apex of the depression, when it was at its worst, did you ever consider suicide? And if you did, how did you get through that? So I can't remember if I mentioned this in the book or not, but the answer is no. I never considered suicide, ever, not even in the slightest bit. I would say one of the worst moments, and there were a few, um, I was probably an hour away from driving to the emergency room because nobody still knew. So she left in uh, on January 14th, 2017. So it's two months later. Nobody knew. So two months of barely eating, barely sleeping, and I'm an emotional wreck. And, you know, if you're going through a hard time, you want to talk to people. I hadn't talked to anybody other than the guy that's causing this problem, Robert Booty. And uh, I'm driving home and I can barely stay on the road. And, and if you've ever had insomnia, it's not just well, you can't sleep. It is physically debilitating and it is unbelievably painful. And uh, I, I knew I said, I can't keep this up. And I, I knew and I said, I don't want to check into the hospital. And you, you want to know why you didn't want to go to the emergency room? Because if I went to the emergency room, they'd start asking questions. They'd want to know why 
that this local real estate broker has checked himself in the emergency room and can't sleep. Then I would have to answer those questions. And somehow in my mind, I'm thinking the emergency room doctor is going to spill the beans. And now people are going to know what Paige and Uncle Robert did. It's absurd, but that was probably the one thing that kept me from checking into the ER and getting help. That's, you know, it's it, like he, it, it appeared that the level of control that Booty had, and not just over you, over Paige and then the kids and everyone, like he was everywhere and he would find out about everything. And everyone was kind of in cahoots with him, was kind of the, um, impression that he wanted people to have which is very consistent with forms of psychological abuse um you know very similar to um people in domestic violence relationships their abusers use very, use very similar tactics with the isolation and degradation and um this omnipotence that they have of all knowing of what you're doing and it'll come back to them in some way which keeps people there and it leads to the fear Right. And, and and Uncle Robert was never wrong. Robert Booty. It was, it's funny because for so many years, like his first name was Uncle and his last name was Robert. I don't know if he, when I knew his last name was Booty. It was always Uncle Robert. But uh, so Robert Booty was never wrong. Right. You could never question him. And that was, of course, what got me in trouble over the years. I constantly questioned him. I tried to ask him, well, what do you mean by this? And um, so, yeah, in, in my mind, I was sure that he would somehow find out he would somehow find out what I've been doing. He'd find out about the sleeping pills and eventually went and saw, you know, a sleep specialist. I went and saw a counselor. I was sure that he would find out. And so with every one of those little steps that I took, again, taking the over-the-counter sleeping pill to finally going to a doctor and getting meds, to then going to a sleep specialist, and then going to the counselor, every one of those steps was terrifying. Terrifying because I was sure Robert Booty would find out and I would be in trouble for doing it. What do you think, uh, I'm sorry, what do your children think of this ordeal now that it's over? Dimitri, I can't hear you. Really? There you go. Now I hear you. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> what do your children think of this ordeal now that it's over? Well, that's a difficult question to answer because I have five children and I always tell people kind of as a preface of what's going on is that uh, parenting is a marathon, not a sprint. So my two oldest, uh, you know, they're out of college, they're on their own, and uh, they don't have anything to do with booty, but they they believe their mom, I'm the bad guy. So we our relationship is strained. Leave it at that. Uh, the two youngest live with me, and uh, they still love their mom, as they should, but they uh, have a very good understanding of what we went through. They have a very good understanding of what Robert Booty stands for and, and what he did. And so they get it. They understand it. And the, the third one is kind of somewhere in the middle. Okay. Now, the book does end on a cliffhanger um, a bit, but what happened to Paige? Like, what is she up to now? What is she doing? You know, it's interesting because when I wrote it, one of the original um, versions, uh, I said, the end. And uh, then she, my editor reminded me, well, you know, it's a memoir, so you, you know, don't say it. You know, you would put that in a novel. So I took it out and um, then something happened this summer, which I don't really want to get into too much because it involves my children. But my youngest child was like, dad, it's too bad you already published your memoir because this should go in it. So I, I um, everything that's in the memoir probably ends around 
20, so we got divorced in 2020. So 2020, early 2021. So now, you know, it's been two years and um, it's not any better. Um, you know, if anything, things have gotten worse between the two of us. I have no contact whatsoever with Robert Booty. And quite frankly, I have very little with Paige. She still lives um, in a different state and uh, I don't even have her address. Uh, she still engages in behavior that I would consider to be very unhealthy. And it's all based on secrecy and, and paranoia and I'm out to get her. Uh, so it's awful. I mean, I, it's it's still an ongoing ordeal, largely because of the children. You know, if we had no children, I wouldn't have probably heard from Paige in years. There's there's a story you told in the book about an ogre on a mountain. And with all due respect, I thought that was the best part of the book. <laughs> because that story is is so like it, it with the, the things that are currently happening in the country i think that story is profound um do you want to go ahead and tell it because sure. i think for that it's what, what's going on now in the country in general that story is a uh, is a great thing to to mention well i lifted the story from the book a god who hates by wafa sultan it's a fantastic book a deep dive into the life of a, a Muslim woman that uh, escapes what she went through and came to America and turned her life around. It's fascinating. And so I don't know if she came up with the story or the story is, a, you know, kind of somewhat of a Middle Eastern parable, but there is a young man who travels the world and he happens upon a small village at the base of a large mountain. And the traveler notices that everybody in town uh, kind of walks around, shoulders slumped, head down, looks like their energy is sapped. They don't look happy. They look scared. So he goes to the village elder and asks why. And the village elder says, because of the ogre on top of the mountain. Be careful. You know, he's very dangerous. And the traveler is like, well, I'm going to go and find out why the ogre is doing this. Why is he terrorizing everyone in this village? And the village elder is saying, do that it's dangerous traveler goes anyway and as he climbs the mountain he approaches the ogre and as he gets closer to the ogre the ogre is shrieking and shouting and screaming and trying to scare the traveler but as he gets closer he notices that the ogre is tiny so then he walks right up to the ogre and the ogre is so small that the traveler can kneel down and he puts his palm out and the ogre hops up onto his palm and he says to him, why do you appear so big? And he says, the ogre, I'm as big as people's fear. And it's so true that what we fear, we give power to that thing. And it's so clear that all of the adults in the little cult of Robert Booty are terrified of the ogre on the mountain for various reasons. And so the ogre on the mountain looks different to Paige than it did to me, to my in-laws than it did to me. And I remember having read that book years before I really got it, before I had the strength to climb the mountain and see that this fat little man was no bigger than something that could fit in the palm of my hand. And I had given him the power and I had given him the ability to seem enormous and terrifying and large. 
So thanks to my faith and my family and friends, uh, I was able to walk up the mountain and kick the little guy off the mountain. And it felt great. Good story. Yeah. I want to, I want to shift away from the the story and the cults for a second and talk about your, your broadcasting. You yep. were a broadcaster, you were a play-by-play broadcaster. Okay. Yeah. You wrote in the book that, um, gambling and sports make bad bedfellows, but gambling is sports now uh the nfl the nba um major league baseball they're all getting in bed with it espn just started their own uh sports book which is disaster but they they're starting it what's your take on the involvement in gambling in sports right now so let me give you you a little bit of history as to why i feel that way when i was in college i was a history major and uh, i did my senior thesis on the 1919 black Sox scandal so think of eight men out think of field of dreams and all that and it destroyed nearly destroyed major league baseball destroyed the franchise of the chicago white Sox, and uh, destroyed the lives of those nine people so you're right dimitri that gambling and sports are now uh, walking happily through american culture hand in hand but it is very dangerous, and uh, I'm still not, still not a big fan of it. And uh, to me, it's just a matter of time before there will be another scandal. There's probably much going on till we, we find out about it. Uh, I'm a firm believer in um, free markets and, and capitalism, so you know, go for it. But the reason we find sports compelling is because we believe the product on the field or the court is legitimate. Yeah. And the moment money gets involved, it's no longer legitimate. And so it's, you know, like George Washington said, you know, government's just like fire. You know, it can it can heat your house and cook your food or it could burn the house down. And that to me is what gambling is. What's the uh, best and worst game you ever broadcast? Well, uh, you know, I did a couple games, college basketball games, where uh, there was either a dunk or the game-winning shot that made ESPN's top 10. And so, you know, top 10 plays of the night. And they didn't use my call. I was so angry. But I was How? doing games. Um, <laughs> oh, How's that possible? Oh, it was Boise State at Colorado State at Boise State. It was like two weeks before Paige left me. It was like New Year's Day. And this kid for Colorado State banks into three to win the game. It was great, right? And I had the call and it made ESPN's top 10 that night. And they didn't use my call. So I had, I had a couple of good games like that. Uh, and then I got to travel the world as a sports broadcaster. Did a lot of, of fun events. The worst event... I've done some high school basketball games that were cringeworthy. They were hard to watch. <laughs> As they should. <laughs> yeah, I can believe that. Okay. Um, I want to get you out on this. Um, I don't know if, if, if you notice this, but I don't know if we can agree that cults are sort of having a moment right now. There's documentaries everywhere, yeah. all over Netflix and HBO. Um, do you have like a top five a cult list like of of the most dangerous or the creepiest or um the dumbest or anything like that that you that you've ever that you've come across this no i i, I don't have a list i will say this though as i continue to read so i don't really consider myself a cult expert yet i don't know if i want to be one i'm the expert on what happened to me because i lived it i was in a cult i wow. was brainwashed so now as I read other books about cults, 
my jaw hits the floor, guys, because you know what? They're all the same. Every single cult leader has so many shared traits. Cults look very different. They come in all different shapes and sizes, but at their core, they are undue mind control, as Dr. Stephen Hassan says in his book. I, I believe he's, he's correct. And so at their core, they have so many similarities. It's scary. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. I really appreciate you coming on here. We, we do too. Uh, the book is Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. It's on Amazon. Is it on it's on any other bookseller, Barnes and Nobles, you can get it anywhere. Yep. yep. Okay. And I do Wonderful. encourage you to read it. It's really fascinating. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for coming. Thank on. you so much. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, everybody, for having me. Appreciate it. agree that cults are having a moment can we agree on that i'm gonna read a list here of cult documentaries that are that have been released within the last i'd say three years all right wild wild country which is about uh the oshi cult keep sweet pray and obey uh which is an extreme form of mormonism cult one of us which was a jewish orthodox uh, it was about people leaving a Jewish Orthodox group. The Family, Bikram, Yogi, Guru, Predator, John of God, The Crimes of a Spiritual Leader, A Sinister Sect, Colonial Dignidad, I'm sorry, Colonia Dignidad, and Nexium. Oh, and Escaping Twin Flames. Nexium and Escaping Twin Flames. And those are only on Netflix. And there was one on, on Scientology too. Well, there was the, yeah, I was going to say, um, yeah. leaving Scientology, yeah. Waco, Rules of Engagement, Heaven's Gate, Cult of Cults, The Vow, and Love Has Won. Those are all on HBO. I, I didn't even count. How many is that? Is that like 15 or something 10. like that? There's a lot. That's upwards. Yeah. How many of those have you guys watched? Maybe a handful of them. Yeah. I mean, they, they're good. It's good. You know, it's a good show. They sell. There's a reason they're popular. I, I, I've watched, I would say, most of them. There's maybe a few here that I'd never heard of when I was looking this up. But now I'm definitely going to watch them. But yeah, I'm I've obsessed with these pieces. shows. Does, does that make that make you a cult junkie as opposed to a crime junkie? Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, it, it, it's it, These things are fascinating. And yeah. our talk with Peter Young was crazy yeah, fascinating. And, you know, this is coming up. For me because I don't know if you guys saw this video that was released uh, from an Elon Musk interview that he was doing at what I believe was a, a summit of like leaders in business or whatever, the deal book summit or something. I don't know what it was called, but he was interviewed. He was in this interview and I don't know if he was doing this because of the tweet he sent out. Uh, have you seen the tweet? You know, I did it. not. I did, I heard about the reaction of you know the um, community, but I did not really read anything about it. I don't know what he what he said. I know he made some comments that was not well received, but I don't know exactly what he, he said. Yeah. He retweeted or he responded to a tweet 
that mentioned how uh, Jews are, you know, it's it's an old conspiracy about how Jews are turning people against the wrong people because they really want to take over and stuff like that. And he responded something to the effect of, uh, the, the this is the total truth or this is the truth or something like that. And everyone freaked out that he's anti-Semitic. And I'm not, I don't know the guy. I don't know that I really want to know him, to be honest with you. Um, but he claims he's not. Okay. But people think that this little interview is part of his apology tour. And so I wanted to play a few things from it because it ties into this idea because it's my belief that there's a ton of cults out there. In fact, statistics are right now the estimate from 2018 from um, Stephen Eichel, who is a psychologist and a cult expert. He estimates 10,000 cults right now in the U.S. There was also like the estimate was like 2,500 like 30 years ago. So it's yeah, it, it, it hit inflation too. I, I anyway, have a theory behind it. <laughs> what, what's your theory? I think, you know, not to be too long on it, you know, to put it short, I think there's a lack of unity in, the, in in this country. So people are looking for things to hang on. They're looking for people to follow. They're looking for alternative to the two options they have. It's either you this, right. you that, or... So there's not yeah. enough diversity, and then people right. are looking for the first new ideology, and then, you know, they just want to be different. That's a fantastic theory. But my it is my belief, my take, that... Elon Musk and Donald Trump are two new yeah. cults. When you look at who they are and what they do, it has a lot of similarities. So anyway, this is him. Uh, this is the first clip of him where they ask him about Twitter or what he calls X now. And the advertisers that are now pulling out of Twitter because of his tweet. There was all of the criticism. There was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger today. I hope today. they stop. You hope... Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go fuck yourself. But go fuck yourself. <laughs> is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob. When he says Bob, he's referring to Bob Iger, who is the CEO of Disney and they're pulling out. That's the first one. I want to play the second real quick because the second one is the follow-up to that question. I, I understand that, but there's a reality too, <laughs> right? Yes. No, no. I, I mean, Linda no, Yaccarino's no, right here and she's uh, got to sell uh, advertising. Uh, absolutely. So, um, no, no, totally. So, so no, no, actually what, what this advertising boycott is, uh, is, is going to do, it's, it's going to kill the company. And do you think that the uh, I, but, and the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company, and we will document it in great detail. But there are those advertisers. I imagine are going to say they're going to say we didn't kill the company. Oh yeah. They're going to say tell it to tell it to Earth. But they're going to say that they're going to say Elon that you killed the company because you said these things, and that they were inappropriate things, and that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform. Right. That's see, that's and, what and they're going to say. And let's see how Earth responds to that. Okay. Who's Earth? Just asking. Asking for a friend. Tell me that's not bizarre. Not just 
the words that he's saying, but how he looks, how he's saying it. Again, you need to find this. The tweet was from uh, Joel Berry, at Joel W. Berry, B-E-R-R-Y. And th- it's a four-minute clip, so you'll see the whole thing in context. But I wanted to read some of the replies to this. And these are some of the refi- replies, right? It's so funny to watch with an R. Spineless people with no principle or conviction other than making money seeing someone willing to lose money to stand on their personal conviction. Interviewer confronted with rare masculinity. There aren't enough words how extraordinary this is. An iconic American. I, by the way, I'm, when you think I'm reading it wrong, I'm not reading it wrong. This is actually either how it's spelled or how it's written. So it's not me doing incorrect reading. I'm about to upgrade my X subscription. Ha ha ha, you can tell Elon has had enough, the gloves have come off, and he is in beast mode ready to take on the world. I told my son last night, and we'd probably have to cancel Disney Plus because they're refusing to advertise on X and explain the situation. He was sad for a minute and then said, well, are there, under, are there other TV companies who aren't that mean? We can choose one of them. He's right. People will judge. That's the beauty of capitalism. We have that choice. I, I, I'm going to give this take. I don't know if you guys ever watched Bill Maher, but he had a segment called, I don't know this for a fact. I just know it's true, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is really good. I don't know this for a fact. I just know it's true that 40% of these responses are not real people. They're bots and they're AI responders because a lot of them, when you look at the ones where they mention X, it's the logo of X. It's not just someone writing an X like capital X. It's the actual logo in the tweet. So someone has to go copy and paste that into a tweet to do that. My guess is a lot of these aren't real, but I've interacted with people that think he's the greatest thing in the world and they sound a lot like this. There's nothing he can do wrong. There's nothing he can say. He's never done anything wrong, even though there's mounds of stuff about, you know, some of the things that he's done with Tesla Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, that's my take on that. And that, that's the reason I kind of brought this up. And when you look at Donald Trump and I'm not going to play anything from him because there's a million things there, it's similar. I, I think people, if there were people that, you know, commented on these, on, on these tweets, they just show that they revere that person. They worship that person. Like you said, you can do no wrong. I mean, if somebody goes, assuming it's true, if somebody goes to the extent of exposing their children to such language and to have the children, you know, I don't know, maybe coercing some kind of orientation that they have their own, it's perpetuating that that same indoctrination that you are a follower of Elon Musk, you know, because you like the way he spoke, because you like that he's brash, because you like like he's, like, he's aggressively speaking. And maybe that that very similar to what happened with Elon Trump, you know. And to go back to what I was saying earlier, I think people see it as maybe refreshing, you know, I'll quote something different, something out of the norm, something that, Oh, I'd rather be this than what we have now as alternatives. Um, so, yeah. So I think people that with that personality, narcissism, people that have narcissism traits, they are feasting nowadays on everybody. They are feasting because they realize that you could be as outrageous as you could be. People will follow you. That's why now, Politics is a model, you know, campaign. There's yeah. a model now that you want to be outrageous because people will follow you. 
You know, that, that's a new movement. So it's like, if you kind of have that kind of personality, you feel like you're in a playground. You know, maybe that's what Elon realized after the past eight years. And he's kind of shifting his, his approach to communicating with his crowd. You know, it wasn't like this before, as far as I could remember. Yeah, people think that also that, you know, you got to be kind of dumb to be involved in something like this or, you know, how could, how could you get involved in something like this, you know? But 54% of people that get involved in cults have a university or higher education. You can't make the claim that these are uneducated people. Um, some other statistics that I found in, and this is the study that I'm getting this from. It's an article from 2021, Cult Conversions from the Perspective of Families. So this is not them speaking to people in cults. They're speaking to family members of cult members and how their experience was. But um, some of the statistics were that 57% of cult members were female, 39% were male, and 29% had a known mental illness. Do you guys want to take a guess as to which ones were the top ones in mental illness? Because the first one is not going to surprise anyone. People involved in cults? People involved in cults, the, the number one mental illness that... And when I say men, mental illness, this is the family member saying that it was known, it was documented. This mm-hmm. they had a mental illness. What the number one the, was? Depression. Delusional depression. It's always depression in the exam. It's, in the exam, it's always depression. It's always depression. Yeah, it's Suzanne. The most the common one. Twenty-four <laughs> percent psychotic disorder, anxiety, eating disorders, PTSD, uh, autism spectrum, and bipolar. Uh, bipolar. Seven percent right. was yeah. down at the bottom. Uh, I was actually surprised by that. I thought it would be higher. Yeah, most yeah, that's true. most most well, most manic people we've seen in our practice, they somewhat always have some kind of um, you know fantasy to believe in, you know, or conspiracy to believe in. Yeah, um, yeah. 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 Do you guys want to take a guess or take a a stab? Uh, maybe that's not a good way of putting it, but. Uh, We'll, we'll go with it. Um, about what the definition of a cult is. Oh, as as the DSM or like a scientific, you know, uh, well, Suzanne, definition. You taught, you taught cults, right? I teach. I teach about this and take it away. Like courses. So what is a cult? So you're putting the pressure on me. Okay. Yes, because um, you did the reading. Let I, I didn't do the reading on this. Well, I didn't do the reading. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a student today. I read the book. <laughs> I did the book. Wow, you're terrible. Giving you an F on this class. You know what? It's okay. I'll retake it. Okay. And I'll ace it. Oh. I'm not even going to fail this one. So a cult is basically a group of individuals, of people, where the group becomes the most important thing to these people. People then experience a sense, typically, of de-individuation where they lose their sense of personal identity and so that they define themselves in terms of the group. They um, are in essence subjected to various forms of psychological abuse unknowingly because this happens very gradually. That includes isolation and degradation and other ways of controlling such as financial control. And let, let, let. It's religious in nature, the cult. Sometimes it has other t- 
types of things. But the goal is everything that this leader tells them, these are what these people are following. Leader or leaders, because there's some cults that have more than one leader. Um, these are the characteristics that I found of a cult. So the first thing is a charismatic leader. Cults mm-hmm. always follow an individual who is the, the the right guy. That's the guy that knows everything. Nobody else knows anything. Um, you always have to listen to that guy. So it's usually just one person. Um, there's ideological purity. They're discouraged. In other words, they're discouraged from asking questions, questioning that person. Any doubts that they have is met with uh, ridicule, punishment. And you know, when we talked to Peter, that's exactly what he said was going mm-hmm. on with with his situation. Conformity and control. Cult leaders. They keep you separated. They sometimes have certain practices that kind of um, mm-hmm. can keep you sort of like in a trance, like chanting, mm-hmm. meditation, sometimes drugs, sometimes sleep deprivation. But I want to, I wanted to point out chanting because, and again, we're gonna, we're we're gonna, I don't know if we're gonna get backlash on this running, but red lightly. <laughs> you look at Trump's rallies; they're chanting. They have their own chant. And those mm-hmm. things. Go to Jets fans. Oh yeah, fanatic fanaticism. That's not the word. It's it's, it's cult cultish. True. You know, there's ritualistic behaviors, right? They do, but I don't know that they're following an individual. Although with the Jets, I will point out that there is one particular leader of that chant in in the Jets games. So, yeah. um, but, but I'm going to give him a break as far as a cult leader. Yeah, we're not going to call him. <laughs> we're not going to follow him. Um, they practice isolation, like I said, uh, something called love bombing, which is something actually that's done with personality disorders, certain personality disorders, where they just overwhelm you with kindness and love at the beginning until they get you into their system and then the in. real person comes out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's it, They get a very us versus them mentality. It's mm-hmm. nobody else understands us. We're the best. We're the only ones that understand what's going on in the world. And again, when you look at some of these these two new cults that I think are actually happening here, that's very much a part of it, the us versus them kind of thing. The outsiders don't know any better. The outsiders, that, you're lying to That's you. right. That's what Peter you're said. Yeah, Peter. I'm the right. only one that tells you the truth. Everyone else is wrong. You should only listen right. to me, that right. kind of stuff. Um, there's some of them have apocalyptic thinking. The world is ending. We've got to get off of the planet, stuff like that. Um, and they require a lot of energy. You have to devote all your time to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that in that respect, I would say that there's that's not necessarily part of these two individuals. Although their people do put a lot of energy in. It. I don't know this sure. requires it as part of a the group, but the people do do it. They actually put that much energy in it, either in social media or, or on TV or stuff like that. So those are the characteristics of a cult. And, and when you look at them and look at what happened to Peter, for instance, I mean, it almost checks off every single one of them mm-hmm. with him. Without a doubt. Right? And I wanted to, uh, to, to read a statistic about the question you asked, Steph, about does a cult have to have an individual or is, is it religious? Uh, 51% were religious the cults that they found in this survey. 12% were therapeutic cults. So like think uh, Nexium, 
mm-hmm. uh, was a therapeutic cult. Six um, percent were personal development cults, and I would say the Twin Flames is part of that group. If I had to guess, because they're uh, they're not religious in the sense of like a like a modern accepted religion, um, a mainstream religion. But they're they have spiritual qualities, but they're not a religion necessarily. They were based on finding the love of your life and sort of like a Tinder gone wrong. I don't know. Um, and then one percent were political, and one percent was pyramid trading, um, which is like Amway. Amway, yeah. I I never thought of Amway <laughs> as a cult, um, but <laughs> to tie it back again what happens in these two scenarios when you go to a rally or you listen to this guy talk, it's you get into fights with your family all the time. Uh, people don't want to talk to you anymore. You cut them out. You can't go you to know. Thanksgiving dinners. You can't go to Thanksgiving dinners because you're screaming at people all the time. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the, you know, there, there have been people's political beliefs that have broken up families and they don't mm-hmm. talk to each other anymore as a result. Absolutely. But, and you know, that is similar to cults where, Mm-hmm. don't want you having contact with people and if they do they can only have the same types of beliefs that you do or the things that you say to people on the outside have to be very controlled because you don't want to inform those outsiders of the true thing goings on you know things that are going on inside the cult yeah to tie this back to sports there's uh there's people i've heard that says texas a&m is a cult I don't know this for a fact, and I have no idea if that's true. Um, but the people that have been there, um, they say it's it's weird. That... Well, the, the the closest thing I've I've seen in in sports to a cult is Notre Dame football. I mean, you know, I, I you've don't been to ask... a game there too. Yeah, I, I don't want to attack the entire institution, but I mean, you know, that's okay. Go... You can do that. Go, <laughs> you know. But I think you can say that for any of the colleges or universities. Let me. When we watch the Hurricanes games, we're all doing this. So we all have hand gestures, right? Yes, but yeah, I was. I know. my understanding was like they do chanting and they have like this FSU weird pep rally. FSU chants. Yeah. it's. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we was said when um, being a fan, it's kind of like a cultish behavior, you know. They, they have rituals, like, you know, they, you know, people that are really fanatics. Yeah. Fins yeah. up. Fins up. <laughs> like, fins up. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. By the way, this thing is the dumbest thing the Dolphins have ever done in the history. This, this is I'm doing the the fin on the top of the head. Yeah, it's the dumbest thing. Look, I, the FSU <laughs> chant is racist, and it's stupid. On top of that, the Kansas City Chiefs do the same thing. They do that. They do that stupid chant. Well, and, supposedly they ask. Supposedly they ask a Seminole for permission, right? Yes, the Seminoles have. They give them the green light. They give them the green light to use their likeness, right? That doesn't make it any less racist, just because the group has agreed. If 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 black people said, you know what, white people, it's okay, go ahead and paint your face black, would that still make it that not make it racist? It would still make it racist. It doesn't matter if the group agrees to let you do it. It still makes it racist. Yeah, I mean. You know, when all is said and done, when all is said and done, we know that cults exist. They're very serious for the people who are involved in it. But we also know that the people who are in cults 
have a lot of emotional damage as a result of being in the cult. And when they leave, you'll see things like post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of that. You know, it's something that's very real. And, you know, our guest on here was gracious enough to come and talk about his experience. Thank you, Suzanne, for bringing us down at the end of all of this. I appreciate that. Let's end this with the mental health tip of the day. Day full of hiccups? Need a shake-up? Listen up! It's the Psych Effect Podcast Mental Health Tip of the Day! Go ahead, Steph. You're on. You know, if we focus on cult, you know, we can actually um, extrapolate to everything in life. And what I've learned with our interview um, with Peter was that we should all try to always stay curious, cultivate that inquisitive mind and do not take everything you're told um, at at face value and always try to read and consider alternative in everything, you know, in politics, in, in, in religion, in life, at work, in everything. Keep a curious mind um, and do not take everything that you're told or you hear as as absolute truth that's how we enrich ourselves and that's why we get you know you consider other alternatives and we don't say in a narrow-minded um kind of uh um behavior or or um you know uh, thought process well said steph i give you an a to do <laughs> and don't get into cults <laughs> all right everyone thank you for coming on and, and listening to us uh like follow subscribe i think you all know the drill i don't think you need to go through all of that again but um, if you can leave a comment for us, let us know what you want to talk about. We've got one more show for the rest of the year coming up next week. And then we're on a break as if we don't take breaks anyway, but we're on a break for the holidays and we'll see you again after that. Thank you everyone again. See you next week. See ya. Bye. The previous podcast is for general informational purposes only and represented the individual opinions of Dr. Dimitri Bick. Dr. Stefan de Graff, Dr. Suzanne Mignon, and the guests. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services and should not be taken as medical advice or an establishment of standard of care. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.